As you notice, we have finished our series on the fruit of the Spirit. Um, What we are doing from today until Easter and a little bit beyond Easter is we're looking at chapters 17 through to 21 in John's Gospel, particularly as as we focus on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the things that are at the very core and the very heart of our faith. So we're looking through John's Gospel, and even though John himself is not named specifically anywhere in the Gospel, right from the earliest of days it was thought that John was the, was the writer of this Gospel. By his not being mentioned anywhere in there um, is generally part of the indication that he was the author of this Gospel. When we call John the fourth Gospel, there's two senses in which that is true. One is the fourth in terms of our order of New Testament books, but also it was the last of the Gospels to be written, most likely in the 80s or 90s, as in first century, not the 1980s or 1990s. Early church writer Clement said that John wrote a spiritual Gospel to supplement the other Gospels. In other words, he was aware that other Gospels had been written and that he wrote another one to also add to what had already previously been written. But John gives his own reason as to why he wrote this gospel. And he gives that reason in chapter 20. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. We're also told in the very last verse of the book that Jesus did far more than, than what are recorded in this book and if everything were recorded, the world wouldn't even fit all of the books that could be written. Do you ever think about that? that now, with, even if you know everything perfectly that's within the Gospels, even John says that's not even a passion on all of the things that he did. And then we also see in this passage that Jesus says that he, he's going to be in a fuller sense of glory as he's gone to the right hand of the Father and he desires that we would see us in his fullness. So even if we saw everything on this earth, there is still more as we see him face to face one day. But as John declared, his purpose in writing the book is that people might believe and that by believing they might have life in his name. Will you join with me in prayer as we pray for ourselves this morning, but also in all of this time leading up to Easter as people may come as visit as they often tend to do around Easter time. Uh, that people might come to belief and have life in his name. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we're given the promise in Isaiah that your word never returns to you void, but it accomplishes the thing for which it was sent. John had a very set purpose that through describing who Christ is, people might come to belief and have life in his name. Lord, I pray for today and all of the times we look through John's Gospel that if there be some who do not know you or who are in our midst, that they would come to know the life that is in the name of Jesus Christ. And for those who do know you, we pray that we would be challenged by the things that we see in Jesus' prayer this morning. That we would see his heart for his people and his desire for mankind and, and his desire for things to happen in this world. Lord, if you don't and do your work by the Spirit this morning, then I'm just saying words. And so, Lord, I ask for your help uh, in the way in which I present things, but most of all, I pray for the work of your Spirit in us individually to receive and respond to your word. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. 
when you look through the, the Gospels, we see a number of times that it just tells us that Jesus prayed. But most of the times it doesn't tell us what he prayed, does it? It just says he went off to a mountain and he prayed. And sometimes you think, I'd like to get a bit of, a, bit of an insight, some of the things that Jesus prayed about. I mean, sure, you might think of the Lord's Prayer, but that wasn't so much a prayer that Jesus said. That was more the Jesus answering his disciples saying, teach us how to pray, which incidentally, that is what he's done. He's shown them how to pray, not specifically the words of what to pray. But the longest prayer of Jesus in the Bible is here in John chapter 17. And what's at the very centre of it is that God be glorified in all things. God does all things for the goal of his glory. We read in 1 Corinthians, we are to be the same. It says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. We use that term a lot, don't we? We might have, I didn't take note if we had it in any of our songs this morning, the idea of giving glory to God or glorifying God. What if you use that in a sentence and someone asked you, what do you mean? What does glory mean? What does it mean to glorify God? I wonder what sort of answer you'd give. Because we use it a lot. We read it a lot. What does it mean to give God glory? The term basically means this. It means the revelation or declaration of who God is and what he is like. It is the proclamation of who God is and what he is like. That is his goal, that it be proclaimed to the world who he is and what he's like. So given that it comes up so frequently, it's worth clarifying those terms. The structure of what we're looking at this morning is firstly in verses 1 to 5, the glory of God in Christ. Secondly, the glory of God in the apostles. And thirdly, the glory of God in the church. There's another term that gets repeated a lot in this in this particular passage that's worth clarifying is this concept of the name like I have kept them in your name or sometimes we talk about doing things for the glory of the name now to a Jewish context the idea of a name isn't just something you choose because it sounds nice like people often ask me why did you call Miller Miller what does it mean I'm like I don't know I just like the sound of it but in a Jewish context, a name was representative of the entirety of the person. It was way in which it described all of who they are, their character. To put it in sort of like a modern context, if you were to spread a malicious rumour about me, someone might say that you are bringing down my name. It's that sense is that the name is representative of the entirety of the person. So to do something for or in God's name means according to and according to who he is and who he has revealed himself to be. Now John 17 begins with the words, after he had spoken these words. So this is here, this is the meeting up there in the, in the upper room before they head out and then there's garden, Gethsemane and crucifixion, all those things. So this is the prayer that, that sort of sums up that time. But if you look back in chapter 16, you'll see there's a couple of things which Jesus has repeatedly reminded his disciples. He's telling them that soon he'll be leaving them. He'll be going back to the Father. That, that there's coming a time that, that they will not see him and they will mourn. But then they will see him again and they will rejoice. It's funny the amount of times that Jesus made very clear to his disciples that he was going to be 
to be killed and come back to life. Yet as you will notice, when we come to Easter Sunday, not a single one of the disciples actually expected that to happen. But we'll look at that when we get there. So verses 1 to 5, the glory of God in Christ. The first thing Jesus speaks in his high priestly prayer is these words. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Lucky we define glory or glorifying at the beginning because we got it twice in one sentence. But his first statement, the hour has come. Throughout the Gospels you'll see times where it looks like the people are going to arrest him and it looks like that's going to be the end of Jesus and it always has this refrain, but my hour has not come. Like even the very location and the timing of Jesus' death was appointed by God. And so when Jesus says, Father, the hour has come, he's saying, now it's coming to the pinnacle of what I came into this world for. To die that death on a cross, to be a substitute for sinful mankind, to work out their salvation. He says, now it has come. Glorify your son. Remember, glorify to, to proclaim or reveal something of who they are and their character in order that the Son may glorify, reveal, declare God the Father. How does, when he's speaking about his crucifixion, how does that declare the glory of Christ and how does the glory of Christ declare the nature and revelation of God the Father? Like on the cross we see the character of God and the character of Christ represented in a way that we don't see anywhere else in such degree of fullness. We see the Son who is the Saviour of the world, who gave himself for sinful mankind. We see how it is that God has dealt decisively with sin once for all. We see the character of God in his holiness. We see his utter wrath towards sin that required the death of his Son. But also we see a God who has compassion upon a lost people who would provide for their salvation. You could very easily preach a whole sermon on verse 1. I'm not going to. Thomas Manton preached 45 sermons on this chapter. I'm trying to squeeze it into one. We've already seen back in John chapter 1 that Jesus Christ is the one who is the revealer of the glory of the character of God. Or in Hebrews, he's described as the radiance of the glory of God. So Jesus is the radiance of the declaration, the revelation of who God is and what he is like, the exact imprint of his nature and upholds the universe by the word of his power. But Jesus also, as he focuses on the cross, knows exactly what that cross will achieve. He says, those whom you have given to me, I give eternal life. Now, that's a word we use a lot too, isn't it? Eternal life. And sometimes we think of eternal life as what we will get to after we die. That's not the way Jesus speaks about it. Jesus speaks about eternal life as something we enter into the moment that we come to faith. We see it a number of times through John's Gospel, but specifically in John 5, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has, past tense, eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. And that might sound a little bit odd. What do you mean now's eternal life? We still have yet to die at some point in the future. I mean, what is the nature of this eternal life that he speaks of? 
quite handy. He defines it in the following verse. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Jesus says eternal life is about knowing God. Now, what do you mean knowing God? That seems a little bit simplistic. Does it mean just to know who God is, know a few things about him? Because that doesn't sound like a very good definition because James tells us that even the demons know who God is and what he's like. Surely they're not inheriting eternal life. In Romans chapter 1, when Paul is describing sinful, rebellious people, he says, although they knew God, they neither honoured him as God or gave him thanks. So surely this eternal life is more than just knowing some particular facts. There are facts that we do need to know. We certainly know who he is and what he has done. But from a biblical perspective, to know God, this word know has an intimate feel of relationship. It's not just about knowing things. Say, for example, I could say, I know Greg Inglis. As in, I know who he is, I know what he does. If you don't like sport, he's a footy player. But if you say, oh, you know, he's very English, can you invite him around to my birthday party? It's like, oh, I don't kind of know him, know him in, in that sense. So this eternal life that Jesus speaks of means to know God, to actually know him intimately and be in relationship with him. We see an example of the way in which the Bible uses that term in, in the beginning of Matthew's gospel when it says that Joseph did not know Mary until after Jesus was born. Now, that doesn't mean that she's there in the nativity scene, then, then out comes Jesus and she's like, what? Who's that? But it means that they did not enter into that intimate relationship until after that point. Likewise, when the Bible speaks about Christians as those whom God foreknew, it doesn't just mean people that God knew about. I mean, after all, if God is an all-knowing God and he knows everyone, then it doesn't mean that everyone is a Christian, but it means that before the foundation of the world, God chose to enter into relationship with them. But this eternal life through knowing God and Jesus is a concept that sometimes gets distorted. People think, hang on, it says knowing the only true God and somehow Jesus looks separated. But they're actually tied together. It says knowing God, the true God and Christ. They go together and it's also in a gospel which is, begins and ends with a declaration of who Jesus is. In the beginning was the Word. Word was with God. The Word was God. John 20, verse 28, Thomas says, My Lord and my God. And Jesus accepts those very titles. So eternal life is about knowing, having a relationship with God. It's never been about doing particular things. Now, often people think, oh, I've got eternal life because I've done this, I'm a pretty nice person, I've, I went to church, I've had communion, I've been baptised. Nowhere does it say that. Eternal life is about knowing Christ and relying entirely upon what Christ has done, not upon what you've done. Remember that very scary passage in Matthew chapter 7 when these people come and say, they'll say, Lord, Lord, we did this in your name, we did this in your name. What was Jesus' response? Depart from me, I never knew you. I never had that relationship because it is not earned by our works. In verses 4 and 5, Jesus speaks both of his role on earth and as he returns to the Father. In verse 4, he says, I've glorified you on earth. 
doing all the things that you gave to me to do. As in, he has revealed more of God's character in the way in which he has conducted himself, the things in which he did, the things in which he taught. He has given us a greater revelation of who our God is. But also, verse 5, he speaks now that he's returned to, to returning, or when he's speaking, returning to the right hand of the Father, that he's returning to the glory that he had before the foundation of the world. That's why I said beforehand that Jesus, what we see, even if we saw in fullness what he did in his earthly ministry, we didn't see and behold the fullness of his glory that we will see one day. As Philippians described in his incarnation in this way, have this mind amongst yourself which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but rather emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So if you're excited about seeing Jesus just based on what you have read in the Gospels, man, there's so much more that you are yet to see. And we long to see him face to face, to see him in all of his glory. And later in this reading, um, Jesus says, I desire that they would be with me where I am and they would behold and see my glory. Nor does it give the impression that Jesus sort of gained this glory after he ascended. He says, return to me what I had before the foundation of the world. Jesus didn't climb the corporate ladder until he got to a particular point. So Jesus first prays that through, particularly through the cross, but through his ministry, that God would be made known and he would be glorified. Next thing he prays that God would be glorified through the life of the apostles in verses 16 to 19. In John 6, Jesus said, no one comes to me unless the Father draws him. Now you see throughout John's gospel this idea that God is always the initiator in salvation. It is God who draws us to himself. And that's the same terms he speaks of the apostles here. He says, those who you gave me from out of the world. Not those who just were naturally attracted to me. God speaks to the apostle, those whom the Father had given to him from out of the world. And because salvation is God's work, something that he initiates, something that he's instrumental in, the effects of it, he can speak about it in concrete terms. Like in verses 6 and 8, he speaks to these apostles because God has chosen them and given them to him, they received Jesus' words as truth and they have kept them. Verse 10, Jesus says, I was glorified in them. In the apostles, I was made known. I was declared in the way in which they have conducted themselves and the way in which they will conduct themselves. Throughout this chapter, you see a common bond between this idea of the unity between the Father and the Son. You see repeated notions of all things that belong to the Father also belong to the Son. That while there is still a distinction of person, there is not a distinction of nature. Now let's remember the setting. It's just come after John 16. Jesus has told his disciples, soon you will no longer see me, you will mourn. I am returning to the Father. Now you can imagine the disciples would have been pretty confident while they had Jesus there by their side. They might have been thinking, how's this all going to play out now that Jesus isn't around? Look at the way in which Jesus prays for them in that context. In verse 11, I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. 
Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. He's got two key things that he prays for them. One, keep them in your name. And secondly, that they may be united, they may be as one. Now, both of those might seem a little bit vague on a casual reading, but we want to know what did Jesus pray for his apostles at this time? To keep them in your name, or some translations might have, protect them according to your mighty character, according to all of your power. Later in this chapter, Jesus says, I have kept them in your name while I was with them. And so Jesus reminded him, just as I have kept them now, so also he's praying to the Father that he might protect them and keep them in his name, even when he returns to the Father. That they can have assurance that God will still be keeping them, protecting them and looking after them. The second thing he prays is that they may be one. In other words, that they might be united, just as Jesus says to the Father, just as we are one. That expression we have there is even as literally means in the same manner. So his prayer for the apostles, they would be just as united in the same way in which the Son and the Father are united. It's probably a good thing to pray for Christians, isn't it? Unity. It's not something that often people are very good at. Jesus knew that at some point there were going to be church meetings that got divided over the colour of carpet. We've all, unfortunately, if we've been Christian long enough, seen division over very petty things. But partly you could ask, is Jesus praying for a lost cause? Christians always seem to be having little bickering over little minor things. And here he's praying that they would be one just as the Father and the Son are one. The way I see it is disunity happens when we take our eyes off Christ and we start looking at ourselves and one another. If we're all focused on the one thing, we're all heading the same direction. There's an example that Ray gave me a couple of weeks ago that he used in his marriage uh, counselling stuff, the idea that uh, if both of you are looking and growing towards Christ, you are growing closer together and you're heading in the same direction. There is that unity. I like the way A.W. Tozer sort of illustrates that connection of that unity. Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos, all tuned to the same tuning fork, are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord being tuned, not to each other, but to another standard to which each must individually bow. So 100 worshippers met together, each looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. Social religion is perfected when private religion is purified. I think I like that idea. He says, you know, you tune all the pianos to one thing, they are all on the same place. And so for when we're seeking for Christian unity, it's rather than just aiming for unity, if we are all looking for and pursuing Christ, there in itself will come the unity. These things, Jesus says in verse 13, he has spoken while in the world so that they might know his joy. That there is joy in knowing that the Father will keep those people in his name. There is joy in knowing the assurance that the Father is protecting. There is joy in experiencing the type of unity that he has called us to. 
I'm sure a lot of you have got questions about unity. We'll come back to that in a minute because he raises it again when he speaks about God's glory in the church. But what does it mean when he says, speaks about the apostles being set aside or sanctified? Verse 14, he says, I have given them your word. Now, previously in the chapter, it says they have kept and received his word as truth and the world hated them. It's not very encouraging, is it? To have taken hold of the word of God and the world hated them. The word of God will always have one or two responses. Either you would desire to accept and hold to the word in a way that may result in the rejection of the world, or if your primary pursuit is to have the acceptance of the world, whether you mean to or not, you will by nature reject the word. So if we're called to be united with one another and the world is opposed to us, it raises a good question. How are we as Christians supposed to relate to the world in which we live? And historically, people have gone three different ways, two of them not good. Often people have worked on this idea of the world's hostile, the world's evil. We just need to isolate. We'll need to keep to ourselves. You know that sort of person? They get up, they do the Bible study, they then go to the next Christian event, they then go to a shop that only a Christian owns, that only Christians go to, they drop their kids off to the Christian school, they come home, they narrowly had to go to a pagan service station because they didn't know one a Christian owned, but they prayed while they were there, and so it goes on. That is not what Jesus tells these people to do. Matter of fact, he prays completely the opposite. Verse 15, Jesus prays, I pray not that you take them out of the world. The second mistake that often has been the overreaction is to assimilate. In other words, to have such a desire to be influenced in the world that we become more like the world than we, than we become more like Christ. Jesus also prays against that. Verse 17, he says, sanctify them in your truth. Sanctify means not only a change of character to make more holy, but means to set apart. So we're not to become like the world, but we are to be distinct. We are called to be sanctified, to be set apart. Jesus says, neither isolation or assimilation are the way to the gay, but the response to the world should be mission, as modelled by Christ himself who prayed, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. In other words, Jesus says, I'm the model of what it looks like to live in the world. Yes, Jesus did have a close group of followers that he, that he's, that he taught and he dealt with, had fellowship with. But throughout the majority of his ministry, he's spending time with people that you'd think he wouldn't be spending time with. In doing that, he didn't become like the world. He was always very distinct, very set apart but he was in their midst and so must we too in order to make Christ known. Now some of us may have intentionally or unintentionally fallen into one of those two categories where we either isolate, keep to ourselves or we become more like the world than, more than we come like Christ. Some might have done that unintentionally. Say for example, I've moved up from Victoria to work in a church. Naturally the people I will encounter throughout the week are Christians. And a lot of you might find yourself in that situation. You moved to town, the, the main connections you had were Christian people. And I'm constantly challenged by that. What will I get involved with in the community in order to make sure that I am involved in, in the lives of other people? 
And if you find yourself in the same situation, it's probably a question to ask yourself too. But just as Christ was set apart by God, both in his purpose and the way in which he interacted with the world, so we are to be the same. God to be glorified in Christ and the apostles, and lastly, the church. Now you might think, Steve, what do you say, church? I've read through this chapter, the word church isn't in there once. Well, who he prays for in verse 20 says, I don't pray for these only, that's the apostle he was just, just speaking of, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Now I don't think it just means those in the first century who hear directly from the apostles, but we hear the words of the apostles through the New Testament scriptures and we have come to faith by hearing the word, hearing the word of God as declared by the apostles. So this is a bit of an indication of the way in which God has prayed for us as well. Notice in verses 21 to 23, there's a fair bit of repetition. Three times you see repeated this, this phrase, may they be one as we are one. Start to get the hint that God likes the idea of unity in his people. And twice he says, so that the world may believe that God has sent me. So God calls his Christians to unity. He says, so that the world may know that God has sent him, that there might be something about the, the unity seen in the life of a church that people say, that is supernatural, that is something which God has done. Which comes to its peak in verse 23. I and them and, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you have sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Have you picked up on that second part before? I never have. Even as it was the same expression used earlier on in the chapter, it means in the same way, it says, by their unity, one of the outcomes is that the world would see that God loves Christians in the same way in which he has loved Christ himself. That is the extent of his love for his people. It's no surprise that we're called co-heirs with Christ in Romans. Now, I'd imagine that all of us would want to see this testified in the world. We'd want the world to know that God did send Jesus. We'd want the world to know that he loves his people. We would want to be united in that sort of sense. But your first thought, and you probably have been thinking it quite some time since I mentioned it, is that a lost cause? Unity amongst Christians. How many hundreds or thousands of denominations are there? Does that mean that unity has gone? I think the problem is we confuse the terms uniformity, meaning exactly the same, with unity. Jesus' prayer was that they might be one just as we are one, the Son and the Father. So his model of what this unity looks like, he says, is like the Trinity, where there are still three distinct persons, but there is unity. There are things that the Father does that the Son doesn't do. There's things that the Son does that the Spirit doesn't do, and so on. But there is still an essential unity there. He's not calling for uniformity. And wherever that's happened in church history, it's always been a dangerous and harmful thing. When they say, must sing this song, church must be done this way, must be that, must be that. That's not the unity that we're called to pursue. 
We're called to pursue a unity where each of us individually are striving to be who God has called us to be, looking to Christ, growing nearer to Christ. That's what we're called to display. It's a revelation that Jesus was sent from God and that they would see by our unity the love that God has for his people. Whether we show it or not, by nature we are united with one another. That's what the Bible says, when you come into Christ, you have unity, you are part of the body. Just like on May 20th, Carl and Steph will be united as one. That doesn't mean that from that day onwards they don't need to actually work at it. In the same sense, Christian unity, while we are by nature united with one another, it is something that we do need to work towards. When we're thinking about the glory of God, the ways in which God is revealed to the world, we had no troubles with that being in Christ and the apostles. We kind of expect that. But I wondered how often we pondered this idea that God would pray that the glory of God, something of the revelation of who God is and what he is like, would be seen in the life of his everyday people. Now, God could use whatever means he, would, he could do to bring people to Christ, but he says, I would desire to make myself known through everyday people. Have a look at verse 22. Jesus says, The glory which God had given to him, in other words, the, the nature of Jesus that declared who God was and what he was like, Jesus says, I have given to them, the church. Jesus has given us the same God-revealing nature thee that he had. As Paul writes to, to the Corinthians, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the one spirit. And part of that revealing nature which he's given us is showing the unity of God as demonstrated in the unity of the church. A unity that testifies that Jesus is the one which God has sent into the world and also that testifies to the love that God has for his people. But we also have a, a continuity in verse 20. When he says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word. I like that encouragement that with the message that we have come to faith by is the message of the apostles. We have connection and fellowship with the apostles and throughout all the church age. It's the same Christian faith in which we have entered into. The Christian faith hasn't changed, even though its expressions may have changed. And just like the apostles were described as those who God had given to Christ, who called into relationship with God, he still calls people in such a way. I'd like to finish with the, the final verse of this, of this chapter and a time of prayer that should encourage us too in our evangelistic efforts. Last thing in that prayer he says, I made to them known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. The same extent, Jesus says, I have made your word known to people. He says, I promise I will continue to make it known. So as we go out and we get involved in evangelistic things, remember the promise of Christ. He says, I will continue to make your name known. We'll have a quiet time of prayer as we 
uh, just give thanks for God for who he is, uh, but also too as we think about um, how we relate to the world and how we uh, share of the good news. And then I'll close this off. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who desires to be known. We thank you that we have most clearly seen you and what you are like in the person of Christ in his earthly ministry and his death and resurrection and ascension. But Lord, we look forward so much to, to seeing you face to face, to behold the fullness of your glory. Or as the scripture says, to, to know you as to the same extent to which we have been known. It's so easy to think of the way in which you have been made known through Christ and through the apostles. But Lord, may it humble us that you have desired and you have prayed that you would be um, declared, you would be proclaimed who you are and what you are like through the lives of your, your individual followers. Lord, help us to be a people who are not um, separate from the world, who are not um, just mixed in with the world, but people who, like Christ, have been sent into the world with a mission. And we ask that you would stir in us to that effect. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.